You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So growing up, I loved Christmas, and particularly I loved the Americana Christmas. It's Tinseltown meets Christmas carols meets some reindeer meets a beloved Christmas movie, right? The gingerbread houses and the trees and lights. I mean, there was just something magical about it. And I remember a few years back, the once-in-a-lifetime snow in East Tennessee that fell on Christmas Eve that bled over till the morning. It was a white Christmas. It was bliss. Sort of. Because as much as I reflect back on my childhood with fond memories of the season of Christmas, I also reflect back on the letdown. (laughs) That is December 26th. It is this grand anticipation, and then it is a monumental collapse off the mountain. It is a great longing seemingly met, and then it is just meh. And let me be the first to say, I still enjoy much of Christmas. I had Christmas music turned up on Black Friday. We've listened to Jingle Bell Rock a sinful amount of times at this point. And last year when Sarah and I were gallivanting through Christmas markets in Vienna, I was having a blast. But here I am. I'm I'm 32 years old. And over the last several Christmases, I've had this very blatant realization that happy holidays is not sufficient. And as I've considered what the Christmas holidays imply, culturally at least, it amounts to cheerful circumstances in most everyone's life where we gather around food and gifts and laugh continuously. And over-the-top grandiose marketing that encourages you to buy more than you need and spend more than you have. The sending of Christmas cards for family updates where we give our best attempt at making our life seem as congenial and pleasant as it appears on our social media feed. And the sweet sentimentality of a manger where a woman gives birth to a child with animals surrounding her under the night sky. Now, I'm certainly not speaking for everyone in our context, but for a lot of people, that is Christmas. But that is so far from the reality. What I think is far closer is that the holidays imply grappling with the sense of dread of visiting your family of origin that over the last decade you've realized there's significant dysfunction in and you're just hoping to make it out alive without blowing each other up. Or the Christmas afternoon scroll through Instagram where you end up comparing your life with everyone else's and you suddenly get this pit in your stomach. Or just regrets that you've had over the last 12 months as you reflect back on your year. Or dealing with your own... Uh, insecurities and pain points where this time of year you just can't ignore them. Or just the general sideswiping that you feel when you look at the world around you. Think back over the last 11 months. Late February, what most of us have probably moved on from. Russia declares war on Ukraine. Millions of people displace thousands of people dead. May 14th. A man walks into a grocery store with racially charged motives and kills 10 African Americans. And 10 days later, Rob Elementary School was shot up and 19 kids and two adults are dead. The last week of July, devastating floods swept over the eastern Kentucky region of central Appalachia and Hurricane Ian destroyed some of the coast of Florida. Midterm elections continue to polarize and divide the country into staunchly red and blue categories. That feels a lot closer to our reality. A very dark and deeply uncomfortable world. And what is more often the case is Americana Christmas meets us with candy canes and mistletoe, and Advent gently but firmly reminds us that God was born in the dark. 
consider the world that God arrived in. A world where a king named Herod was so arrogant and power-hungry that he murdered his own wife, two of his own sons, and young boys throughout the city in five days before his own death in order to guarantee a proper, proper atmosphere of mourning in the country, he ordered the arrest of many citizens to be killed on the day he died. Or a world where a young pregnant teenager was not even allowed to have bed in which to have her baby. Or a world where the people that heard the announcement that God arrived on the scene first lived in huts and caves, and the place that God was born into was a nobody town on the outskirts of a city. The world God is born into was dark. Happy holidays is not sufficient. Because Christmas is not a celebration of sunny circumstances. It happens in the bleak of night. The images and prophecies throughout the Old and New Testament are that of light breaking into the darkness. The famous passage in Isaiah 9, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Or Zechariah's prophecy about John the Baptist and Jesus. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. John says of Jesus in John 1, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And in John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. God does not arrive in a world that is going well. He arrives in our world. A forest fire that is seemingly out of control. So the expectation and the hope of the Israelites is that the Messiah would come and right every wrong, free them, and grant them status as a powerful nation again. The Messiah is supposed to save us from Rome. The Messiah is supposed to take over the halls of political influence. The Messiah is supposed to announce himself through his crown. He was supposed to. Advent, the arrival of God, dismantles all of our supposed tos. And as is so often the case with following Jesus, nothing about it meets our very low expectations. Philip Yancey says the main emotion of the American adult who has all the advantages of wealth and education and culture is disappointment. Who among us does not deal with massive disappointment? I have to think that was the experience of so many of the people who learned that God arrived in the mud. And our biggest barrier to belief is that we think God should have arrived elsewhere. From Titus 2, 11 through 14, we read, For the grace of God has appeared. Now, traditionally speaking, Jews were not allowed to say Yahweh's name because they believed it was too holy to be spoken. Neither were they allowed to write it, too frightening for even the pen. And all of a sudden, Yahweh removes the barrier and closes the gap by entering the world through the cry of a child on the edge of a city who was too frightening to be spoken of, has taken on hands and feet and bones and lungs, and who was too startling to write down, has embraced the most vulnerable position among us. The God who held the world in his hands now holds the thumb of Mary. And if we, 
were to compare ourselves to the characters of the incarnation, our temptation might be to locate us as shepherds, right? Minding our own business and then all of a sudden glory appears and we are stunned. Or maybe it's to see ourselves as Mary, singing the songs of deliverance with joy, battling with belief and yet confident that God has chosen her for such a time as this. Or maybe we see ourselves as the wise men, the astrologists who are only going off a rumor that the Messiah has been born, and yet when they come face to face with him, they choose the path of civil disobedience and refuse to bow to the empires of the world. But I think a lot of us find ourselves like the crowds. In Luke 2, 1, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Folks are making their way to Nazareth because Rome wants to know who they can tax and who they can enlist to grow their imperial army. And so here are the crowds, the masses, the people, and they're just, they're just busy. They're too busy to listen to the silence that God was born into. The inn is crowded, full in fact, full of activity and busyness, the latest news, the latest disaster, the latest victory. There is so much news and there is so much information being passed around that the good news of great joy is unheard. Who has the time to hear the thunderous and quiet announcement that the king has arrived to dismantle evil when you're so consumed by other things? Or take it a step further, maybe we're like the scribes. Matthew 2 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. So they know. They are most familiar with the old story. They are well versed in the theology of the Jewish faith and the plot line. No one need correct them. They have the right understanding. And the devastating peace is their right understanding leaves them unmoved and unstirred. It does not humble them. It elevates them. It does not floor or surprise them. It's not even really news to them. It is a fact about God, not an encounter with him. But here he is, born into the world just as he said he would be. And here they are, undeterred by such startling revelation and yet firmly convinced they know. I imagine that if the grace of God, God himself, walked through the back doors of this church, he would probably go unnoticed. The only people that noticed that God had arrived on the scene were the unnoticed people of the world. For the grace of God has appeared. We did not approve of this appearing. And if we were the authors of the story, we would have changed his appearance entirely because we would have had something to do with it. Both Luke and Matthew go to great lengths to tell us that with as much power and generosity and competence and capabilities that we have, we had nothing to do with God's arrival. It had to be so strange and so beyond human comprehension that God used a virgin woman, angels, and stars a million miles away to get our attention. See, we would rather it say, for we made a way for the grace of God to appear. Or for we ushered in the grace of God by our... But it doesn't say that. For the grace of God appeared in an instant, out of the blue, not because of us, but for us, not to spite us, but in spite of us. And it says bringing salvation to all people. The scandal of Advent is that it diagnoses a problem in all of us, to all of us. 
There is darkness in the world, no doubt, and we are a part of the world, and thus the darkness also lies within. God did not come first to save people from the external forces and consequences of sin, but of the internal ones. He came to save us from us. Everyone believes society's got a problem, and few agree on the solution. For some, corruption is the problem, and politics is the solution. If we could just get the right people in power, we would be okay. Now, I think there should be just laws. There, there must be. And yet the legal system is imperfect and no laws, though good and necessary, will legislate the human condition. It does not have that power. Even though fighting for just laws is good and biblical, it does not address the root cause. For others, mental health is the problem and therapy is the solution. And listen, I am a big proponent of therapy. I see a therapist. I am grateful for him. I think more people need to be in therapy. But listen to these stats. Just this past spring, the CDC found that 45% of high school students were so persistently sad and hopeless in 2021, they were unable to engage in regular activities. Almost 20% seriously considered suicide and 9% attempted it. Therapy is helpful, but the issues go deeper. For some, inequality is the problem and financial redistribution is the solution. If everyone would just have the same amount of money, the world would be equal and inequality would be dead. And if you've heard anything from this pulp of the past year, we deeply care about the edges of our city. And I personally believe that inequality is a serious problem. But redistributing wealth does not nearly go deep enough because it cannot address greed. For others, the oppression of identity is the problem and self-expression is the solution. If people were just allowed to be who they want to be, then we wouldn't have issues. Now, arguably, we live in one of the most socially progressive nations in the world. And if you don't believe that, you probably haven't traveled the world very much. And if you haven't noticed, we've still got lots of issues because the biggest issue of self-expression is the denial that there is an issue. For some, immorality is the problem and morality is the solution. If everyone would just behave properly and orderly, and if everyone would do just what they're supposed to do, even behave Christianly, then we would not have issues. But the sole mantra of behavior modification and sin management is what Jesus spoke most prophetically against. He called people that acted this way whitewashed tombs. His entire Sermon on the Mount is a laundry list of items against that. The rub on all of these issues and solutions is that none of them give you a new heart. God has come into the world because we are barely capable of identifying the problem and we are wholly incapable of providing the solution. All of those solutions I just mentioned have one problem, which is they don't go down far enough. They're all symptoms. The issue is darkness. We live in a dark world and we are by our very nature born into darkness and thankfully the one that could descend far enough to solve the problem did. And then Paul says that salvation has been brought to all people. Arguably the most scandalous aspect of the entire Christmas, Christmas message is that the king of the Jews would make his home with Jews and non-Jews. So much of the criticism that is lambasted toward Jesus is because of who he keeps company with. The book of Matthew 
was primarily written for a Jewish audience, which means it's more surprising to read. It's the only gospel account that includes the visit of the Magi. It is not unfounded to think that the astrologist who came from the East would have come from Persia or Babylon, which were Gentile nations. It would have floored a Jewish reader, but it's not at all unlikely that some of the first people told of God's explosion onto earth were not of the Jewish household of faith, but from a foreign enemy. And then Matthew 8, we get the story of Jesus and a Gentile. Jesus is met by a centurion who is a high-ranking Roman military officer. So, in many ways, he represents the enemy of the Jewish people, an oppressive force that marginalizes the Jews. Our equivalent might be that of a U.S. military officer in the 1800s. Here's what the centurion asks, Lord, my servant is paralyzed at home and suffering terribly. Now, an important note, centurions were not allowed to marry, so it's likely this servant at home is the only family member in the household of this man. So picture this commanding officer of Rome approaching a Jewish teacher from the people that he is actively working to exploit and asks him for a supernatural act of compassion. And Jesus says something that would have absolutely shocked the senses of his Jewish audience. I will come and heal him. I will come and heal him. This implies a visit to his home, and the minute a Jew walks into the home of a Gentile, they become ceremonially unclean. And the centurion then responds with, Only say the word, and my servant will be healed. As in, don't even come into my home. I believe that your word carries that much power. And then the story takes a very sharp turn. Matthew includes these words of Jesus, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. What a blow to the Jewish community. A disgusting Roman officer being lauded for his faith over the entire people of God. And then Jesus takes it one step further. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In a world in which Jew and Gentile wouldn't be seen dead conversing over a meal, Jesus says that will be the measure of the kingdom of heaven. Where the Gentiles, who the Jews referred to as dogs, would dine with the fathers of the Jewish faith. Here's the point. The inclusivity of God is arguably what so much of the fuss is about in the New Testament. Those who assume they are in also assume others who are out. And God flips the entire thing upside down and says to the Jewish people, what you think will save you will not, and who you assume is out is not. If Jesus' claim to be the Son of God is what the religious establishment despised about him the most, an extremely close second is who he dined with at dinner parties. The incarnation is about proximity and approachability of those who we think, nope, there is no chance. The message of the angel, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And we are so very much like the Jews of Jesus' day. We hear that line and think, God has brought good news of great joy to me or to my people. And that is true. It's just not only you. 
Over and over again, God says, I will choose Nazareth, not Jerusalem. I will choose the girl nobody wants. I will choose the boy everybody has forgotten. I will choose the man who's off to the side. I will choose the incompetent, the unimportant, and the poor. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. See, the scandal of the story is that God would become a helpless infant, and the surprise of the story is that he would make it most apparent to those who have no credentials. Paul goes on to say, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. See, the incarnation is the beginning of the end of sin and death in the world. And with the end in mind, God goes back to the origins of his covenant with Abraham and says, I'm not only going to give you a new name, but I'm going to remake you into a whole new people. One of the great markers of Jesus' life on earth is not that he is merely renaming us, but he is remaking us. And so much of that remaking is a completely new way of being human in the world. Everything about the world Jesus turns over, everything about our own cultural moment right now, Jesus speaks to prophetically today. He speaks to anger. In a society where anger is now a virtue, the central question God confronts us with is, are you willing to leave vengeance up to me? He speaks to objectification. In an overly sexualized society, the central question God confronts us with is, are other people image bearers of me or objects of your personal pleasure at your personal disposal? He speaks to our word. In a fickle and flippant society, the central question God confronts us with is, is your word worth anything? He speaks to enemy love in a tribal society that is hell-bent on picking sides. The central question God confronts us with is, are you willing to follow me to the place where your love costs you something significant? He speaks to our public and private life. In a society where perception always and only equates to reality, the central question God meets us with is, is what you are doing performative spirituality? And how much do you care if only I know what you do in secret? He speaks to prayer. In a self-help society, the central question God confronts us with is, are your days marked by quiet moments of full, open-handed surrender to the Father? And he speaks to our stuff. In the wealthiest society in the world, the central question God meets us with is, you can't love both. So will you love me or money? And ultimately, he speaks to the thing that motivates us the most, fear. In a downright anxious and overly fearful society, the central question God confronts us with is, do you believe I am your Father in heaven? God gets birthed into the world, and he explicitly proclaims there is another way. It is called the narrow one. The call on our life is not to be wowed by the incarnation and then quietly move on into 2023, with little sensitivity that God is calling us out into life through death to self over and over again. The call of this church is to be this small expression in this tiny community, to be an outpost of the kingdom of God where we model another way. Not one between two sides, but one that transcends all sides. It's not so much a centrist model where we take some good from this and some good from that, but a wholly different model where we say our life gets reoriented around one person and it's going to cost me. And I will count the sufferings of Christ as something we're sharing in. 
So we find ourselves in this valley of in-between. We long to walk with God and we fail to walk with God. We long to receive grace and we spurn it. We want forgiveness but not humility. We want affirmation but not secrecy. We want the world made right and we want to be right. Here's what Paul says. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Waiting has always been a problem in the human race. Go back to the very beginning of the story. Adam and Eve walk with God in the garden and sin enters the picture and God tells them a prophecy where a son would crush the serpent's head. And Eve says in Genesis 4, With the help of the Lord I have brought forth a man. And Jen Wilkin comments that this is less the idea of, Look, I have a son, and more of a, Oh, here he is, the deliverer, the crush, the crusher. Of course, in hindsight, we know that Cain was far from the deliverer. In fact, he was the opposite. He began the chain of violence that we still lament today, and it would be millennia before God came in the flesh, but Eve didn't know that. She, the mother of all living, carried with her the exact problem we still have, the hope and the agony of waiting. What places like Amazon have tried to do is eliminate our need to wait. Our impatience is our greatest kryptonite when it comes to cultivating any sense of deep hope. We can barely wait for three minutes in the grocery line without needing to stimulate our brains via our phones, much less for God to come and redeem the entire universe. We don't curate longing anymore. We don't wait in suspense. We are uncomfortable with the stillness between one event and another. But so much of the scripture is an invitation to wait, to be quiet, to seclude ourselves from noise, to listen to the whisper of the wind in the house of Bethlehem. Advent marks something momentous. God arrives, and his arrival is not just something that happened in the past. It's the beauty of the Trinity. It's why we actually hold to the doctrine of creation so tightly, because God is still creating. Advent is on the calendar to reorient ourselves toward God, who is always creating, bringing his kingdom to come in part now and in whole in the future. Our entire lives are built around the fact that we live on a visited planet that God has come into and is coming again to. And yet it is very natural to make Christmas so sentimental. But God's entrance into our world is quite the opposite of sentimentality. It is not only a matter of glad tidings, But as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, frightening news for everyone who has a conscience. The love that ascended to Bethlehem is not the easy sympathy of a loosely affiliated deity, but a burning fire whose light chases away every shadow, floods every corner, and turns midnight into noon. This love reveals sin and overcomes it. It conquers darkness with such intensity that it scatters the proud, humbles the mighty, feeds the hungry, and sends the rich away empty-handed. A transformation of this scale can never be achieved by human means, but only by divine interference. Advent might be compared to a prison cell in which one waits and hopes and does various unessential things but is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside. 
The image of the quaint nativity scene is scandalous, but it is insufficient to explain Christmas. Yes, God came to earth through the womb of a mom and landed where animals would eat because there was no actual bed for her to give birth to, but it gets worse. This child would become an adult who would die the death of a slave, and it would be in that death the darkest night the world has known where our hope is realized. This is the impossible message of Christmas, that God would come in the most unconventional of circumstances with the least fanfare, and he would say, follow me to the hill of death. See, here's the irony. The greatest weapon the enemy has is killing And the greatest weapon we have is dying. The greatest weapon the enemy has is killing, physically and otherwise. Death through abuse, through selfishness, greed, animosity, through self-indulgence and increased apathy. Death through personal fulfillment and circumstantial success. Death through malice and slander, through wealth, through arrogance and pride and elevating oneself. All the ways that Satan attempts to crush us. But God showed us that the greatest weapon we have is dying. A death to self, where we join in the Spirit's work in killing all the things that so easily cling to us, and we do so by doing the nearly impossible work of putting on meekness, of bearing with one another, of expressing gratitude, of giving up habits and disciplines that produce death and build rhythms around our life that contribute to our whole beings finding footing in God alone. And then, of course, a final death in the grave where we believe that it's just the end of the preamble and the beginning of the story. The wonder of Christmas is that we can take our cue from someone like Mary or the irrelevant shepherds who we don't even have names for, and yet God showed up to them with a proclamation of peace. I have not come to condemn the world, but to save it. And a declaration of war. Behold, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Happy holidays is not going to cut it. Every 50-foot tree and church bell and holiday party all put together create less pandemonium than Jesus, who instead of remaining like a quiet statue in a crib, which is where we would prefer him, because that puts him at a safe distance from us, He comes alive and delivers us over to the fire that he came to light, as Brennan Manning says. There is a story recounted every Christmas in the southern province of France, and it goes like this. There were four shepherds who came to Bethlehem to see the child. One brought eggs, another brought bread and cheese, another brought wine, and there was a fourth one called L'Enchanté, and he brought nothing. The first three shepherds chatted with Mary and Joseph, commenting on how well Mary looked, how cozy the cave was, and how handsomely Joseph had appointed it. What a beautiful starlit night it had been. They congratulated the proud parents, presented them with their gifts, and assured them that that if they needed anything else, they had only to ask. Finally, someone said, Where is L'Enchanté? They searched high and low and couldn't find him, but there was a blanket that was hung up at the back of the cave to protect against the draft. There, kneeling at the crib, was this man, L'Enchanté, or the Enchanted One. Like a flag or flame taking the direction of the wind, he had taken the direction of love. Throughout the entire night, he stayed in adoration. Jesus, Jesus, 
Jesus. The invitation of Christmas is not to be lulled to sleep by the American imagination of a little nativity and a lot of pomp. It is not to stack up our schedules so that we feel important and needed. It is to stare at and feel the weight and wonder of God bursting into our world that is seemingly falling apart and here. The kingdom of God has arrived. And our response to this is to become like that little baby. Helpless, vulnerable, weak, some might even say shipwrecked. We have nothing to give and nothing to bring. And so we quit trying so hard as if our discipleship was built on appearances and we start dealing with reality, completely broken and utterly loved. And we echo the word from the, from the O Little Town of Bethlehem hymn. How silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessing of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming. But in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. In 2022 and in 2023, he is still entering into those who would empty themselves of everything but him. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.